You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 16th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. This is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, at least 29 people have been killed in a Russian missile strike on an apartment building in Dnipro in southern eastern Ukraine. Many more are injured or missing. The former justice minister has been arrested over his role in the storming of the Brazilian Congress. We'll look at the events leading up to the insurrection. Then... Be the first sitting president of the United States to have an opportunity to speak at Ebenezer Sunday service. You've been around for 136 years. I know I look like it, but I haven't. In the US, Joe Biden marked what would have been Martin Luther King's 94th birthday with a sermon at Dr. King's church. We'll cross to Prague to look at the Czech presidential elections, have a flick through the papers, go to Davos for business news and get the latest gossip from the world of theatre. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Russia and Belarus are starting joint air force drills, triggering fears Belarus will join the war in Ukraine. A new report says companies from 13 countries are helping Myanmar's military to produce weapons that it's using against its own people. And Japan and India have begun their first ever joint fighter jet drills in an effort to bolster defence ties in the face of China's growing military power. Do stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, let's begin in Ukraine. Alia Chandra is the editor-in-chief of Euromaidan and joins me now with the latest updates from over the weekend. Alia, many thanks for coming on Monocle 24. There were two major Russian missile strikes over the weekend. Can you give us the details? Mm-hmm. Well, good morning, um, Yes, indeed. Um, it was a difficult weekend um, with Russian missile strikes. The first one uh, happened early in the morning of 14 January and um, it targeted Kiev and um, there, were, there were residential buildings hit, uh, no casualties. But the interesting thing is, is that they were for the first time carried out from um, uh, either an S-300 or S-400 missile launcher, which is an anti-aircraft missile that Russia has repurposed in order to um, in order to strike land targets. And uh, the problem with this is that it's been using these missiles to pound relentlessly at um, cities in the southeast, and it has a lot of them. They are not easily detected by Ukraine's air defense. Um, and it's um, this is why probably why the air um, warning signal sounded too late. It sounded after explosions were heard, meaning that air defense was not able to locate this missile that was flying by a ballistic trajectory. So this is really if um, it's bad news for Kiev because really the most damage that Russia causes, it is with these 300 uh, S-300 missiles um, that it is using en masse against against cities such as Kherson, such as Kharkiv. Um, and uh, it's it, it really requires a level up in Ukraine's air defenses. Uh, well, for instance, the Patriot um, air, air defense 
system it's it can shoot down ballistic missiles but of course there needs to be a lot more of them and um the the same truth still 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 stands is that it's better to destroy the target of the miss of the missile launches than of the missiles in the air um, themselves um and the second major missile strike happened shortly after that um and uh resulted in really a bloody bloody um strike at Dnipro when um, a missile a caught 22 missile hit um, an, air, um, an apartment complex, causing one entire section to collapse. And uh, as as of late night yesterday, the death toll was 29 people, and um, over 60 were injured. Rescuers are still um, trying to uncover people beneath the rubble. Um, it was this is a type of missile that Ukraine cannot shoot down. Also, um, it's a guided air missile. Um, and um, really, it's it's just it's just incomprehensible how who gave the orders to just shoot this missile in an apartment building. It's um, the same type of missile, by the way. It was used to hit a mall in Kremenchuk. This was uh, this happened this summer, the Amstrad Mall, where also many dozens of people were killed, and the world shuddered at at the thought of such a thing why send a missile into a mall well the same missile type of missile was sent into an apartment building and um, three days of mourning were announced in Dnipro but of course the entire country is in mourning it's it's just incomprehensible for us why do such a thing is fighting continuing in Solidar and do we know if the Russians have definitely taken the salt mining town as they've boasted um, we definitely know that fighting is still ongoing. Ukraine's officials are reporting that fighting is still ongoing. Um, there are unofficial reports that um, Ukraine has withdrawn to the um, to the industrial outskirts of the city and uh, that Russia controls the center. But the situation um, does uh, change very, uh, very often. It's uh, it's very fluid, and the fog of war obscures what is truly happening. But uh, we can, um, the, the, the thing is that right now the question arises before Ukraine whether it needs to um, keep fighting for Solidar and for Bakhmut as it is because uh, basically Russia wants to capture Solidar in order to gain a foothold on, on Bakhmut. Um, whether it really needs to be fighting for these two cities that hold a lot of, um, a lot of symbolic value but not much military um strategic value because ukraine has announced that it needs to launch a, uh, that it wants to launch a counteroffensive in the spring and it is um gathering the equipment that it is that is needed for this counter um offensive um with uh, the british challenger tanks being the first uh, western heavy weapons that that will help ukraine regain ground so whether it needs to actually expand its um its uh its its power, its its men and its equipment on holding on to these cities is it's it's a big question that Ukraine now faces, um, um, and of course, uh, General Zeluzhny earlier said that we need roughly three hundred tanks in order to regain all of the ground that um, that Russia captured since twenty fourth February, and these Challenger tanks. I would like to th give a huge say, say a huge thanks from all of us Ukrainians 
for the British people for giving these tanks. Um, they are just the first drop in this in this um, in this amount. We know definitely that the Czech Republic is giving um, over a hundred refurbished tanks, but further than that. Um, uh, it will need to be Western battle armor that will boost up Ukraine's defenses in order to end this war sooner, in order to stop this bloodshed. So we know that uh, German-manufactured heavy-duty Leopard 2 tanks will be coming to, to Ukraine, but there are some estimates say delivery won't be until 2024. I, I wonder, firstly, is, is that timing a problem, which it would appear to be? But also, are Ukrainian forces trained to use the vehicles? You know, there has been a lot of um, a lot of fears that Ukrainians will not be able to to use Western equipments, as and et cetera, et cetera. But um, as it turns out, in training, Ukrainians have shown them to be highly capable of mastering all sorts of um, novel equipment. Uh, for instance, uh, with the Patriots training, um, the the entire course is designed to last over half a year. But um, Ukrainian men that are mobilized right now, many of them are highly qualified. They are civilian who had engineering uh, professions, who had had technical IT professions in their peaceful time. And um, as I've heard... uh, as I've heard, they master this um, this course not in six months, but in the course of a few weeks, because they already are highly tr- um, capable um, and highly trained for, for these sort of things. Um, uh, so I think it's not that big of a problem to train Ukrainians. Uh, a larger problem is uh, the spare parts that will be needed to repair them. And this is something that, that uh, a problem that has already surfaced with the uh, howitzers, especially with the German howitzers. Um, uh, they wear out very quickly because of the intense scale of, of war fighting. And um, because of that, they will need to be re- repaired. All of these solutions have to be thought of um, before, of course, before Ukraine goes into the attack. How to repair the vehicles, how to find spare parts, how to, um, how to make them operable uh, and continually uh, capable of, of use in combat. Now, we've been reporting in our headlines that Russia and Belarus uh, are starting joint air force drills. Uh, it, what is the feeling in Ukraine about a possible invasion uh, from Belarus or indeed uh, Minsk joining in uh, the war? Well, um, the uh, signs our authorities are giving is that we can't rule it out, but right now we are not seeing any signs that, that Belarus is indeed going to enter the fight. Um, I mean, talks about this have been ongoing throughout the whole course of, of conflict um, since uh, the invasion of 24 February. But currently, the Russian army is fighting for the small, small salt mine town of Solidar in order to to attempt to capture a no, a, just a little bit larger town of Bakhmut. So, you know, I don't think that they're right now and have enough capacity to actually enter, open another front and stretch out their forces. So the bottom line is that right now, no, we're not seeing any immediate signs that Belarus is entering the fight. Alia, thank you very much indeed. That's Alia Chandra there. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. 
It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Twelve minutes past four in Brasilia. That is uh, 7.12 here in London. Following the January the 8th storming of the Brazilian Congress, one of ex-president Jair Bolsonaro's key allies, the former justice minister Anderson Torres, has been arrested. He was the security chief of Brasilia at the time of the attempted insurrection, just a week after Lula da Silva was inaugurated. Well, I'm joined now by Antonio Sampao, who's an expert on Brazilian politics and security at the Global Initiative against transnational organised crime. Uh, uh, Thank you very much for joining us, Antonio. Uh, Torrey's arrest comes after documents were discovered pointing to the fact that there may have been a carefully constructed plot to overthrow Brazil's democracy. What more can you tell us about that? Hello. Um, So the document they found in the house of Anderson Torres is indeed quite serious. Uh, It's a document... um, a draft decree by, um, um, presumably by Bolsonaro, by former President Jair Bolsonaro, of um, establishing a state of defense or state of siege, perhaps in the translation to English, um, that would suspend some um, some some democratic liberties. Uh, and the justification for that was an intervention in the um, Supreme Electoral Tribunal, which decides. Uh, things such as the voting machines that are involved in Brazilian elections, which is fully electronic. It's it's uh, it's a vote through uh, electronic machines. So um, the argument of this decree is that there are suspicious uh, suspicions uh, looming over this the this, this system, which is a, a, a very long-standing um, accusation uh, with flaws, but a flawed accusation, but an accusation by the Bolsonaro supporters uh, that this process is not transparent. So they were using that to, to do this draft. Now, Anderson Torres, this uh, former minister, former justice minister of Bolsonaro who was arrested, he uh, claims that that was a draft that was meant for the rubbish. He was going to throw it away and he didn't. Um, nonetheless, it's a very damning uh, document for him. It's a very serious document that they found, and it complicates his legal situation quite tremendously. Mm. Now, the attack uh, on, on Congress and, and two other key buildings uh, seems to have been carefully coordinated. There are reports that thinly veiled invitations to join a beach party in Brasilia were sent out prior to the violence. What do we know about that, and does it link to Torres? Yes, there are um, several uh, new revelations that are emerging almost uh, every every day now about the level of organization and coordination for these attacks, um, which seemed at the time for some as um, more or less a spontaneous thing because they were marching, the, the protesters left their encampment in uh, the in front of the army headquarters in Brasilia because they were uh, trying to argue for a military intervention against the elected president Lula da Silva uh, and marched to the uh, presidential building, to the square of the three powers, as it is called, where the Supreme Court, the Congress and the presidential palace are, and then they invaded the buildings. However, um, they uh, certainly had support from some 
business of, of the business community, some wealthy uh, sponsors that took pe- people by bus from several cities. So there were people from the north of Brazil, which is very far away from uh, from Brasilia, people from the southeast, from Rio, uh, Sao Paulo, that were um, uh, taken free of charge by bus to Brasilia. So there was some level of support. But perhaps even more seriously than that, uh, now the core of the investigation and the efforts are focused on how, first, on how high up the involvement and knowledge of what the protesters were meaning to do goes in terms of uh, former ministers, as we saw with Anderson Torres, with um, uh, other uh, former officials of the Bolsonaro government, and, um, and equally serious, the complicity of military police officers and even army officers uh, in this plot. So this weekend there was an article by the Washington Post saying that uh, the army officials in front of the army headquarters tried to block some um, uh, civilian officials from the Lula government to, uh, from entering the encampment in front of their headquarters to to search for s- suspects um, shortly after the the invasion took place. So there are, these investigations are going on, um, and several videos reveal that some police officers uh, stood by as the protesters. Uh, invaded, stormed the Congress, and including inside the building, and seemed to be pointing the protesters toward the inside of the building. Uh, and we know that the security forces are deeply, deeply infiltrated by the ideology, by some of the uh, political uh, support to, to to Bolsonaro and his sort of um, right wing conservative agenda. So, so, so these are the 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 the, the, the different levels of the investigation so far. Uh, and what what else will he? I mean, Lula has said that there will be a full investigation. Where does it even start? And what what is the timeline on this? So now the investigations are centred on the... um, Let's say the criminal uh, aspect of it, and the the the, the protesters. Um, uh, I believe the 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 count of protesters arrested is you know around the one thousand mark. So there are a lot of them, um, and investigating them would be a, a significant challenge uh, to investigate all these people. And also these networks that we've been talking about, the supporters, the financial supporters, and uh, obviously the uh, Anderson Torres and uh, some of perhaps um, um, other other authorities involved. But after that, I think that the next step for Lula will be what to do about uh, Jair Bolsonaro. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro is currently in the United States. He was there since uh, he since shortly before he left the presidency. Actually, he did not participate in the. Um, handover ceremony to Lula. Um, and we saw that um, there are several parallels with the U.S. case, with uh, the, the, the 6th January uh, storming of Congress. And there, there was a congressional inquiry into the um, into the, the issue and also into uh, Donald Trump's involvement. Uh, and, and there were already, immediately after the, the events um, in Brazil, in Brasilia, um, congressmen suggested a, co- a congressional inquiry into, into the issue. Uh, they didn't say it was going to be sent from Bolsonaro, but I believe that this is the the the, the next logical step about what to do about 
you know, the, the, the broader, more sort of vague, but, but still quite serious uh, in, in incentivizing or uh, ideology that surrounded the, the events. And I believe that will be done through a congressional inquiry into the Brazilian Congress. Uh, and, and finally, Antonio, a poll last week by Atlas Intelligence showed that 40% of Brazilians do not believe that Lula won the election. I mean, what does that mean for the future of the country? They can lock up Bolsonaro, but they can't get rid of all of his supporters. Yes, uh, the the Bolsonaro phenomenon in Brazil is quite um, a, a, a not only serious but also uh, a bit of a puzzle for um, you know political scientists and those studying Brazilian politics because uh, it's a relatively new phenomenon that emerged you know in the in the in the twenty tens in the late twenty tens um, and the the far right before that the far right in Brazil you know was virtually non existent um, but he you know he he got Bolsonaro got he 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 lost by a very narrow margin so it's 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 a significant level of support. And after everything, all the tumultuous, you know, four years of Bolsonaro with the horrendous uh, deaths that occurred during the pandemic, um, the the burning, you know, the deforestation of the Amazon, uh, he still holds a significant majority. And in part, that derives from the still lingering per, per, uh, perception that um, the, the, the left, the Workers' Party of Lula da Silva, has... Um, um, conducted significant, extensive corruption, the car wash investigation, even though it, it is virtually uh, stopped at the moment, um, covered significant. So so that the, the legacy of anti-corruption um, sort of remains in Brazil and drives some of the Bolsonaro phenomenon, but also this um, the sense that uh, there was a movement that was started by Bolsonaro and his supporters are now thinking that this is this is the time to keep the momentum. I think there is a sense of uh, high stakes going on because if they do nothing, this will gradually die down now that Lula is in power. So his supporters are still there. They're not all, uh, fortunately, as, as, as radical as, as those we've seen in Brasilia. But um, but there is a, a fringe of this of this of this problem, uh, of this movement that is quite radical. And I believe that for the first time in, the, in its modern democracy, Brazil faces uh, an organized extremist, politically extremist uh, movement, uh, which is quite, quite um, sombering, I think, for one of the, the largest democracies in the world. Antonio, thank you very much indeed. That's Antonio Sampao there. Still to come on the programme, we'll be heading to Prague to discuss the impact of the Czech presidential elections. We'll flick through the day's papers and we'll find out where the celebrated Paul Mescal shines in a new revival of Tennessee Williams' A Streetcar Named Desire. This is The Globalist. United States Americans are celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King on a federal holiday that's dedicated to community service. Monocle's Chris Chermack visited one volunteering opportunity in Philadelphia to explore the connection between Dr. King's legacy and community. I want to give back to honor Martin Luther King's legacy and helping out with poverty and homelessness. And so, you know, I saw this event online and I decided to register. By default, I grew up in a very impoverished background, and so I benefited from a ton of nonprofits. And so, anytime I can give back because, you know, I have the means, I tend to do it. But yes, it's MLK weekend, so of course, I looked specifically to kind of give back more this weekend. Well, I tried to get a, a mix of 
dental stuff. Got to get some uh, a brush, toothpaste, some soap, water. You're gonna need that for it, and a treat. <laughs> and what brought you out here today? Oh, I was convinced by my wife to to remind myself to step forward. You know, to help others because we've been blessed. So that's my give back there. Today's Martin Luther King Day and the preceding weekend are seen as a time of reflection and giving in the United States, which is why the African American Museum of Philadelphia is hosting an evening, bringing together around 30 volunteers to pack up care packages for the city's homeless. Tonight we are launching the Big Give Back, which is a fun ode to James Brown's is the Big Payback. This is Nina Ball director of programming for the African American Museum of Philadelphia. This is just the beginning and not the end. The museum is uh, accepting donations monetarily as well as in-person donations all throughout the rest of the month of January and we'll make another give to the Center for Hope at the end of our campaign. We started out with a circle of what's your name and why do you give back? So we set the tone of caring, of love, in the spirit and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King and the war on poverty. We're just here to do our part. The event in central Philadelphia is one of hundreds of volunteering opportunities taking place today and over the last weekend across the country, all with the memory of Dr. King in mind. When they wanted his day to be a day of service as opposed to just another day off from work, I got it. This is Jewel, a volunteer docent at the museum. And this is what I believe Dr. King would have wanted and what he was about, community service. He was a community giver. But it's not just Martin Luther King's general sense of community. Morgan Lloyd, who coordinates volunteers here at the Philadelphia Museum, says the volunteering tradition is in keeping with the lesser-known legacies of the one-time leader of America's civil rights movement. We all know MLK as our civil rights crusader, but also one of his biggest fights that people often don't discuss is poverty. Simultaneously, we're thinking of the Poor People's March. We have the ability to continue his mission and to look out for those who do not necessarily have the ability to entirely look out for themselves or, if they do, they're at least able to see if there's a community who is thinking of them. Meanwhile, down in Atlanta, Georgia this weekend, at the Ebenezer Baptist Church where Martin Luther King would once hold sermons, President Joe Biden addressed a special Sunday service. I stand here humble, being the first sitting president of the United States to have an opportunity to speak at Ebenezer Sunday service. You've been around for 136 years. I know I look like it, but I haven't. More seriously, Joe Biden used the speech to once again remind people of the stakes in the United States as it struggles with its democracy and wrestles with race relations and the legacy of slavery. But he also used his remarks to remind people of the importance of community. On this day of remembrance, as we gather here at his cherished Ebenezer to commemorate what would have been Dr. King's 94th birthday. We gather to contemplate his moral vision and to commit ourselves to his path, the path that leads to the beloved community. Here in Philadelphia, that sense of community is strong as volunteers fill three tables full of care packages for the Center for Hope 
a local charity that runs a series of homeless shelters. This event shows me that the community really does care, that they understand the need, and they're showing up. And so this is a powerful moment. This is Ashley Jimenez, executive director of the Center for Hope. In terms of what comes out of this is I hope that people are inspired to continue to give, not just to our facility, because we are one of many, but whenever they have the opportunity to give, I hope that they do and that they, they see the impact. And it's all being done with Dr. Martin Luther King in mind, so much so that each care package includes a quote from Dr. King, picked out by the volunteers and written on cards. They've chosen some great quotes. What's your favorite quote, can I ask? If you cannot run, walk, cannot walk, crawl, no matter what, keep moving. Martin King. Do you mind if I ask you what you're writing? The quote I'm going to write is, faith is taking the first step, even if you don't see the whole staircase. And I, I really like that. It just resonates with me. And I think that a lot of things in life you can apply that quote to. Well, as of right here, it's uh, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. Why did that one resonate with you? We all face difficulties, no matter who you are. And if you give up on, you know, the hope and the dream, you're cooked. <laughs> yeah. So keep on keeping on. At a time of deep divisions in the United States, such simple lessons from Martin Luther King are as important as ever. Here's Nina Ball, the museum's director of programming again, channeling some of that positive outlook of Dr. King. There's more that unites us than divides us. I think sometimes watching the news and not connecting with real humans one-on-one, -on -one, we have a perception about the world or that it's gotten colder, but we don't always remember that the answer lies with us. So it's about real people in real space and time connecting to literally make the world better. And I think that's a responsibility that we all have. And sometimes we have to set the example first. For Monocle in Philadelphia, I'm Chris Chermack. And playing us out there, the choir of the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Russia and Belarus are starting joint air force drills, which will last two weeks. The exercises have triggered fears in Kyiv and the West that Moscow could use Minsk to launch a new ground offensive in Ukraine. The Belarusian Defense Ministry is insisting the drills are defensive in nature to prepare for possible combat missions. As a result, Ukraine is tightening its border defenses. A group of former top UN officials says companies from at least 13 countries are helping Myanmar's military to produce weapons that it's using against its own people. The US, France, India and Japan are among those named, despite Western-led sanctions intended to isolate Myanmar. And Japan and India have begun their first ever joint fighter jet drills in an effort to bolster defence ties as they face China's growing military power in the Indo-Pacific region. The 11 days of exercises are taking place near Tokyo. Japan's ground and maritime self-defence forces have already conducted joint drills with their Indian counterparts. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Voters in the Czech Republic went to the polls on Friday and Saturday to choose a successor to Miloš Zeman, whose second and final term expires in March. 
Retired Army General Petr Pavel narrowly defeated the populist billionaire André Babic, and so there will be a runoff vote between the political newcomer and the former Prime Minister. Well, I'm joined now by the Prague-based journalist William Natchez. William, thanks for coming on The Globalist. Can you tell us about the numbers for the eight candidates that have made this second vote necessary? Uh, well, the numbers are very close, actually, because uh, Petr Pavel and Andrei Babish, as you say, they're the two candidates who have made it to the second round. And they both received almost exactly the same uh, proportion of the vote. They both got 35%, and they were only separated by about 20,000 votes. They were both far ahead of the of the other candidates, including the third-place candidate, Danashena Rudova, who was expected to be much closer. So the difference between the top two and the rest was much larger than than we had previously expected. Can you tell us more about those two main candidates? Yes, well, uh, Petr Pavel, he was, a, as you said, he was a former Czech chief of staff of the armed forces. He was then the head of the NATO military committee. Uh, he's kind of seen as the more establishment candidate. He's very uh, kind of aligned with the current government uh, in terms of foreign policy and uh, security and so on. So he's seen as as kind of a part of the existing political establishment, if you like. Andre Babish is a kind of very controversial figure, populist figure. He's the head of the opposition. He's the leader of the opposition and the head of the Anno Party. He was the prime minister until the last general elections in 2021. And what were the big issues dominating the campaign? Well, the big issues dominating the campaign were as throughout all of Czech politics at the moment, um, the big issues are attitudes towards Ukraine. Uh, so, for example, since the since Pavel and Babish have been confirmed as the as the two candidates for the second round, this issue has come to the fore significantly. So, we saw uh, yesterday uh, Babish uh, unveiled these new billboard adverts, which were saying that he wouldn't he wouldn't take the Czech Republic into war. He would keep the Czech Republic out of the war. So, he was suggesting that Pavel given his military background, was very keen to take the Czech Republic somehow into, into an armed conflict. Uh, and this, is, this kind of campaigning is similar to what Viktor Orban did in Hungary last year in their general elections, and it's very uh, a divisive form of campaigning. The other issues which dominated were the, the powers of the president, so the correct role of the president in... Uh, uh, there's some debate about the constitutional limits which the president can, can act within. So there's there were some controversies. Petr Pavel said that he, for example, would not appoint as president members of a certain political party who are kind of anti-NATO, anti-EU, because he said that that these people as ministers would be a threat to the country's security. So there's that's been another major element has been debate about the scope of the president's powers. And what will the legacy of Milos Zeman be, the the, the former? Mm-hmm. That's a, it's a it's an interesting question. He. If, if you'd asked me a year ago, uh, it would have been his legacy would have been an attempt to build closer relations with the East. He was for almost all of his time as president, he was seen as as a kind of a bridge with Russia, especially and also with China. He uh, he for most of the time until Russia invaded Ukraine, he was pushing uh, closer economic, business, and diplomatic relations with Russia. That changed slightly in 2021 when we had this uh, affair about Russian spy uh, presence in the Czech Republic. But his his stance uh, seemed to change significantly after Russia invaded Ukraine. And he he kind of did a U-turn, if you like, and and has since then been very opposed to Russian 
influence. But for many in the country, he's still seen as a kind of as a slightly anti-West, not anti-Western, but a slightly sceptical of the EU, sceptical of the West and very more open to relations with the East. Uh, And finally, William, when will the runoff be held and who's likely to win? The runoff will be held so two weeks after the first uh, round of voting. So that will be uh, a week on Friday and then it's on two days, the Friday and the Saturday. So that's the 27th and the 28th, I believe. Um, and it's, who will win is difficult to say, but given how close the first round of voting was between Pabish and Pavel. But uh, if I was predicting, I would predict Pavel because, as I said before, Babish is a very controversial figure and he has a he has a core of voters who are very loyal to him but i think he will find it difficult to win over uh, skeptical voters to win over to win over kind of floating voters uh, whereas pavel has a has a broader appeal including amongst the voters for the other candidates who didn't make it to the second round so i can't see babish personally getting the 50% over 50% that he would need to win the vote but i may be wrong william thank you very much indeed that was william natras there and this is the globalist Join Monocle 24 every day and let the briefing guide and inspire you through uncertain times, always keeping you ahead of the curve. Hear razor-sharp insights and opinion from a lineup of brilliant minds every day. It's devolving to a point where we're at odds with each other instead of letting our political leaders do the dirty work, so to speak. Catch up with Monocle's bureau and correspondents around the world. Heavyweight coverage, no white noise, and always delivered with a smile. I think the grey areas lead to a lot of sort of awkward conversations, and there's nothing the English dislike more than awkward conversations. Every weekday at 1300 CET, midday in London and 7am in New York City. Keep your appointment with The Briefing, weekdays on Monocle 24. It's 10.37 in Ankara and 8.37 in Zurich. And let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Bruno Ferreira-Gasses, who is Asia Digital Editor with the BBC World Service. Welcome, Bruno. Thank you. It's lovely to have you here in the studio. Now, of course, you will have heard us talking about Brazil earlier on in the programme and the insurrection there and the investigation that's going to take place. Uh, But we're seeing in, I think it's uh, El Globo, uh, all about the artefacts and the art that were damaged during that. Yes, well, there is uh, damage worth millions uh, inflicted by this horde horde of, of Bolsonarista supporters who were extremely angry with the defeat of the incumbent president and they as they this i mean they were bent on intent on on promoting destruction within the the presidential palace the congress and the head of the supreme court and destroyed pretty much everything that they saw ahead of them uh, one of uh, it's artifacts like uh, a clock, a relic that was brought to Brazil by the Portuguese royal family, by the emperor Don Juan, Don Juan VI. It's from the 19th century. They've inflicted serious damage uh, in a modernist masterpiece by done one by one of Brazil's leading modernist painters, de Cavalcanti, and uh, so it's estimated that that will. It, some of that, I think, is irreparable. I think there is no the damage is is beyond uh, putting it back in place. 
Uh, but regardless, I think it's it's scenes that have shocked many in Brazil. And if there was any support left for the, some of those who went into the, the the presidential complex, I think it's waning down after having witnessed these brutal scenes. Mm. Uh, let's move on now and have a look at this piece that appeared in The Independent. It's all about uh, passenger aviation. Well, yes. So what The Independent is saying is that passenger aviation globally has become extraordinarily safe, especially in, in the last decade or so, over the last 10 years. But now, with the latest accident that took place over the weekend, Nepal is become a tragic outlier, as it calls, because it has suffered 13 tragedies in 13 years, which is totally at odds with the numbers worldwide. In 2022, the total aviation death toll of uh, worldwide was 174, and it corresponded to the average number of fatalities on the roads in an hour and a quarter worldwide. Wow, that's some figures there. Why are there more accidents in Nepal? Is it because it's so mountainous? Well, that's the terrain being one of them, but also the fact that their whole system and their training and the and the air fleet is very outdated. It's uh, the Yeti Airlines and more of its companies are even banned to in. in in throughout the European Union, just to give you an example, so. Mm. And I understand that that black box from that Nepali flight has now been found. Yeah, so we'll get to know more about possible causes behind it in very much soon, I would believe. Let's go now to the New York Times, which has a piece about affirmative action. Well, yes, uh, as you know, uh, the U.S. has been, has had since the Trump administration a. a staunch conservative Supreme Court and which is revisiting some decision more liberal leaning decisions and one of them has to do with affirmative action which grants uh, students from minority ethnic backgrounds uh, a path to gra- uh, to get into uh, renowned universities. And there are cases such as that of Harvard and the University of Carolina uh, in the Supreme Court, in in which the this uh, right-wing-leaning Supreme Court is widely expected to overturn or even roll back affirmative action in college admissions in such cases. And many education experts, what they're saying is that such a decision could lead not only to changes in who is admitted, but also jeopardize long-established strategies that colleges have used throughout the years to build more diverse classes, to create programs that are intended to reach specific racial and ethnic groups for scholarships, for honor programs and recruitment. And finally, we'll go to India and a new film there. Yes, so uh, RRR, which is a film that's causing a roar, is now... Won one more award in the Critics' Choice Awards in the U.S. It's a Telugu movie, the language, and it's a film fantasy, but uh, built on solid historical facts, which is, uh, it's about two revolutionaries who fight against British rule in India. 
And it's being it's has been watched by James Cameron. He said that he watched it twice. It's pretty much Bollywood style, over the top, long, and with dances included, of course, because it's Bollywood. But it's picking awards everywhere it goes. Uh, it it had a historic Golden Globe win. Now, with the Critics' Choice, it becomes an even stronger contender to probably perform well or even pick up the main uh, award in the upcoming Oscars for uh, Best Foreign Film. Excellent. Bruno, thank you very much indeed. That was Bruno Ferreira-Gastez, and this is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time now to talk business with Susanna Streeter, who's Senior Investment and Markets Analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Susanna, good morning to you. I understand that you're in Davos. Yes, I certainly am. At the start of the World Economic Forum, where world leaders and uh, business bosses are, are gathering from around the world. I'm certainly here for the run-up to the event. It gets pretty pricey after today, so I won't be staying because it's just impossible to find any accommodation at a decent price uh, nearby. But it's been fascinating uh, to meet so many different innovators and entrepreneurs who are trying to get investment for their ideas to propel them forward. I mean, it's a bit like a big, huge trade conference, amazing um, different ideas that you hear talked about. Met one entrepreneur, for example, who's trying to use blockchain technology to add transparency to the supply chain company called Noble Profit. So there is so much going on. Uh, around the fringes of the World Economic Forum, away from the big discussions mm. among world leaders. I mean, it's been two years of disruption because of COVID. Now that it's all back at full strength, is there any sort of change in the makeup or the discussions of the people that are, that are there? Well, certainly the cost of living crisis and uh, the uh, global recession expected to roll in uh, this year with a third of the globe uh, set to be in recession, according to the International Monetary Fund. That's concentrating minds. But, of course, given it's a meeting of the wealthy elite, I think some world leaders are staying away because it doesn't jar it, it, it jars, doesn't it, with the with the uh, populations who are really struggling in the cost of living crisis if they see their leaders jetting off to socialise um, with billionaires. Mm. Uh, but obviously, this is a forum. It's quite unique in many ways. You don't just have world leaders and the leaders of some of the world's biggest companies. You do also have around the fringes climate campaigners. You have these entrepreneurs that I was telling you about. It is quite a unique makeup and that's why it's so popular. Mm. Uh, I mean we're talking about global recession but in fact there's good news uh, from the FTSE 100 as inflation fears actually ease. Yes that's right and the, the FTSE has been flirting with record highs. It certainly seems as though investors have fallen back in love with UK assets after a really difficult period when the FTSE 100 really was a, a wallflower among global indices. Confidence has rebounded as investors eye up China's reopening, helping commodity stocks. A stronger than expected appetite from consumers has boosted the retail, travel and hospitality sectors, while banks are still riding the wave of higher interest rates. And British 
Chinese consumers have been really flexing their spend on spending muscle over the Christmas period, and the country looks more likely to have escaped falling into recession in 2022. So the waves of optimism are still lapping over、uh, the London market for now.、Um, the FTSE seems to be the flavour of the month, but there is still a risk it could be short-lived because we've got these niggles of worry about、uh, ebbing consumer and company resilience in the months to come on both sides of the Atlantic, and U.S. banks building up. Buffers setting aside huge sums just in case debts turn bad, and we have、uh, the UK housing market set to turn from a quiver to a shiver as painful rate rises start to hit. So confidence may seep away again. And just just looking at the other side of the Atlantic, the US Federal Reserve it seems it's almost finished with rate hikes because of inflation actually peaking. Not quite yet.、Um, it's likely that the Federal Reserve will still.、Um, Hike rates. At the moment, the forecast is that、um, rates will、uh, rise to around five percent, because the problem is core inflation is still proving very sticky, even though the overall consumer prices index is coming down, and the labour market still remains pretty tight. And that's why policymakers aren't likely to ease off the pedal of rate rises just yet. Even though、um, it will exacerbate the downturn, so、uh, I think what you're seeing on the markets is that every time there's a shred of positive news showing that inflation is coming down, Wall Street rises. But then policymakers come out and say, "Hold your horses, we're not done yet." So I expect this cycle to keep continuing、mm. for some time. And Susanna, just before you go, what effect, what economic effect will China's reopening have? Well,、um, we've seen a surge in、uh, stocks related to China, so kind of. Commodity stocks, for example,、um, since the the start of the year,、um, so there is an expectation that it will help buoy、um, the recovery from、um, the downturn. However, we've got to get through these waves of COVID infection yet, and the World Health Organization has warned that actually deaths are being underreported, and with a lot of travel expected for the、uh, Chinese the Lunar New Year,、um, there are worries that actually. Cases could escalate in rural areas, but ultimately, China's reopening should help ease supply chains, those snarl-ups that we've seen a little bit further, and could ultimately bring down inflation. Because, of course, if you can get hold of goods more readily,、uh, the price tends to come down. Susanna Streeter, thank you very much indeed. This is the Globalist on Monocle Twenty Four. Finally, on today's show, I'm joined by Matt Wolf, theatre critic at the International New York Times, to find out what's been making headlines on stage. Now, Matt, you were very kind recently when I was in New York, and you、yes. um, offered me various uh, um, recommendations、yes. of what to see. I'm afraid I just ended up seeing Moulin Rouge, which I could have seen here. Yeah, well, you know, there, there we are. There we are. I'm kind of embarrassed about it, but I was with my daughter who really wanted to see a musical. No embarrassment <laughs> necessary. New York will still be there, and. And, you know, there will be more shows next time. Well, hopefully.、Uh, here in London, though, the play that is really getting a lot of attention is Tennessee Williams' *A Streetcar Named Desire*. Tell us more. Well, 
for one thing, it's getting a lot of attention now because it's a delayed opening more than anything uh, in terms of timing. It was supposed to open December 20th. <clears throat> the leading lady, um, Lydia Wilson, uh, had to uh, pull out of the production due to an injury, and she was replaced remarkably by uh, a terrific actress called Patsy Ferran, who has worked with this director, Rebecca Frecknell, before, as a result of which they delayed the opening until January 12th. Now, the news value of the casting uh, is not so much Patsy Ferran, wonderful though she is in it, uh, but Paul Mescal, he is the Irish actor many people will remember from the uh, Hulu series Normal People, based on the Sally Rooney novel, and he became kind of this instant uh, heartthrob, TV heartthrob. And since then, Normal People now was a couple years ago, but since then, astonishingly, he, he seems to be announced for more movies than I have cups of tea. He's just been announced to uh, star in the sequel to Gladiator, uh, the, of course, Russell Crowe film and astonishingly for me as a theater person he's just been announced to take over one of the uh, main roles in a movie of Sondheim's Merrily We Roll Along that is uh, being done by Richard Linkletter uh, and so here he is in his in a rare London stage appearance and I think uh, a lot of people are feeling like aha can he do theater? The answer is yes, he can. And now, will he ever do theater again? Yes. Uh, or maybe we've lost him to movies forever. In which case, uh, listeners have until February 4th to catch him at the Almeida. And maybe that will be it for his theatrical life. I hope not, because he's a stage natural. In this production, of course, uh, it's Tennis Williams's great play from 1947. Uh, he plays the part of Stanley Kowalski, the uh, Polish-American uh, in New Orleans, Louisiana, who is visited by... By his sister-in-law, Blanche Dubois, and uh, all sorts of emotional and sexual havoc uh, ensues. Uh, the role, of course, is indelibly associated uh, on stage and particularly screen uh, with Marlon Brando. And there's always the thing about how do you escape the shadow of Brando, which looms large over this part. And Paul Mescal manages to do it by not following any of the mannerisms or any of the sort of uh, benchmarks that you associate with Brando, the wet T-shirt look and all that. Mm. And it's absolutely his own take on a production which is itself very radical. Uh, the look of the production is very stripped back. Uh, the set is basically just a raised platform. Uh, Patsy Frenna's Blanche doesn't uh, appear in the signature white suit that you associate the character with. She's not a kind of ethereal, diaphanous blonde. Uh, all of these, you might think, well, what difference does it make? The difference that it makes is that the it's as if the director has kind of wiped the, the chalkboard clean mm. and said, let's just start from scratch and look at this material as if it had never been done before. And how does it land in 2023? And the answer to that is that it lands with blistering force. Uh, because there are no sort of trappings to the production, everything about it feels very elemental. This raised platform begins to seem appropriate for Gladiator, it begins to seem like a gladiatorial arena where the actors who aren't on stage in any particular scene sit around the periphery, and then whoever is on stage obviously takes center stage. But you feel at every moment the potential for something sexy, but also something very dangerous. Mm. And you never know which way Tennessee Williams will push it. So I thought it was great. How wonderful <laughs> to have it completely stripped of all those familiar tropes and just back right. to, to what the lines really are. My favourite line from that, I think, is possibly everybody's favourite line. Blanche Dubois saying, I don't want realism, I want magic. Yes, yes, yes magic. Yes. <laughs> it's got so many great lines. I, I love the line, sometimes there's God so quickly, which is a line that Blanche delivers to uh, an amazing 
amazing, uh, the amazing actor playing the part here. Uh, there's a character in the play called Mitch who you think for a while might be Blanche's savior, and she certainly <laughs> thinks that. And she, uh, Patsy Friend as, uh, as Blanche, and this wonderful actor Dwayne Walcott as Mitch have this extraordinary scene which ends with her saying, "Sometimes just got so quickly right before the interval," and you think, "Don't stop now! I don't want to drink now. I just want to hear what's going to happen." And of course, it, this is—I mean, most people, I'm sure, haven't I? This is not a happy, clappy play. Uh, it's it's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And so pretty much everyone when it comes to grief. Uh, there must also be a, a wonderful shout out to Anjana Vazan, who plays Stella, uh, who is a fascinating part. She's Blanche's younger sister, uh, who's married to Stanley Kowalski. And you really realize in this production that she's absolutely caught between extremes. She is devoted to her older sister, who is delusional, but Stella, nonetheless, there's great familial warmth dating way back. On the other hand, she clearly has feelings for this man-child of a husband, who's brutish on the one hand, also tender on the other. Uh, She is pregnant with his child, so she's not about to abandon him, nor is she in any position to. And so she sort of participates in her sister's, well, for lack of a better word, sort of her sister's incarceration at the end. And it's it's very powerful stuff. Um, Matt, a quick look at Watch on the Rhine. Watch on the Rhine. Uh, uh, interestingly, another American play, this one earlier, this is from 1940, uh, much less well-known than Streetcar. It's by Lillian Hellman, who is better known for The Little Foxes. Uh, lovely production at the Don Mar by Ellen McDougall, uh, a director making her Don Mar debut. She used to run the Gate Theatre in West London. And it's about uh, a family living in a Washington, D.C. suburb in 1940. America hasn't yet entered the war, but they're very aware of the war. And there's a grand dame matriarch played beautifully by Patricia Hodge, who is visited in her family mansion by her daughter, uh, who has been away for 20-odd years, who in the interim has married a German man. And the daughter and the German man and their three children are coming to America to stay. I will only say that the German man we discover has a secret, and I can say no more. But it's very, very emotionally satisfying. I was very moved by it. So it's been a good year for the American repertoire in London. Mm, Astonishing. stuff. Uh, Just a a very quick return to Broadway. Yes. Um, What should I have seen? (laughs) Well, the extraordinary thing is that yesterday, Sunday, January 15th, I guess it was, was sort of a bloodbath on Broadway. There were six shows that opened on the same, uh, that closed rather, on the same day. Uh, Broadway's having a tough time of financially. Uh, some very, very good black American drama, which some of which I think will come here. Uh, a revival by um, the August Wilson, the wonderful black American writer, the piano lesson of Samuel L. Jackson. That's scheduled for London. A lot of the other things, I'm afraid, they're gone. Yeah. But not forgotten. <laughs> but they are gone. Yeah. I, I wasn't crazy about any of the big new musicals. Some Luck at Heart, the big musical on Broadway, didn't do it for me. Kimberly Akimbo, another one, didn't do it for me. Broadway this season, for me, was about the plays. Yeah. Well, there's your advice if you're heading to Broadway. See the uh, plays. See the plays. Uh, that was Matt Wolf. Thank you very much indeed, Matt. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, our researchers, Lillian Fawcett and Andre Nikolai Parmentuan, and our studio manager, Callum McLean. After the headlines, there's more music on the way, and the briefing will be live at midday in London. Now, of course, lots more programmes are ready to download from our website. Meet the Writers from Yesterday featured 
the the author Howard Jacobson, who has been nominated for the Booker Prize three times. He's won it once. Great comic writer talking about his childhood uh, and uh, and his new book, uh, Mother's Boy. Now, The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>